0: The Lord be with you. In my very critical, formative years, one of the television shows which helped shape my young mind was a tired rerun cartoon, maybe one of the worst cartoons ever made, called The Mighty Hercules. Low, low-budget animation. Pretty good theme song, actually, 128 episodes, which repeated pretty much the same story every time. The mighty Hercules was loosely, and I mean sloppily and poorly, based on Greek mythology, the ancient city of Caledon. Each episode follows a well-worn formula. An evil villain crafts a scheme and makes a ruckus, or maybe takes a hostage. And then one of Hercules' friends, Newt or Toot or Helena, they would call for help. And the mighty Hercules would leap from the top of Mount Olympus, the wind gently buffeting the fabric of his tunic. And then Hercules would land effortlessly. And then he would try and beat up the bad guy without bothering to put on his ring of power, the ring with the great big H on it. And he would take a brutal beating. And then he would put on his ring of power. And at a staggering six frames per second, we would see the strength of 10 ordinary men. And he would beat the stuffing out of that bad guy. And then Hercules would laugh and celebrate with his friends and they'd be glad that they all learned a valuable lesson. The Mighty Hercules was terrible television, even from the vantage point of a child. But if you didn't have cable, it was something. (laughs) Little House on the Prairie, old CBC vignettes, or The Mighty Hercules. Imagine my surprise then when I later had a chance to read those Greek myths about... Heracles. Most of those stories would not have really been a great choice for a children's cartoon, although I probably would have loved it. Like most Greek myths, they address some pretty adult themes. And apart from the action sequences, they're hardly anything like that heroic figure with the ring, and the centaur for a best friend, and that blonde love interest. For a whole assortment of reasons, practical, cultural, economic, a hasty uh, process, and and really low expectations for the audience, the makers of that cartoon altered and adapted these myths, abbreviating, revising, simplifying, sanitizing, producing a barely serviceable retelling of those original stories. For a whole bunch of reasons, practical, cultural, economic, a long and tedious process sometimes, quite often because of extremely low expectations of congregations, the Church's handling of our text and scripture can suffer from some of the same shabby treatment. Without work and insight and care, without the lessons of history and the ongoing work of the church, we risk a serious downgrade in our worship and our work in the world. Because our understanding of who God is really matters. It shapes our practice and it informs our story. As all too brief and limited humans, we will never actually really fully wrap our heads around this stuff. As the Apostle Paul famously said, We see now as through a glass darkly. We don't ever get the full picture. Faith is a path of grace and a path of mystery. And there is so much that we will never really fully understand. But the Christian faith also calls us to a robust engagement with life. Learning, listening, discovery, doubt, courage, the long pursuit of wisdom. In the midst of all of that is mystery. This makes all the difference. It's actually a really good thing for the practice of a life of faith to occasionally... Do a little bit of theological hygiene now and then. Maybe occasionally revisiting an old assumption, a conviction. Is there a corner of your theological imagination which might benefit from some close attention? A fresh insight taken for granted beliefs which might be due for a a revisit? As the hymn says... Ponder anew? Better yet, maybe there are some really bad lessons that we could unlearn. At the heart of 2,000 years of Christian faith is the question who is Jesus Christ, anyways? From the start, the church has had to contend with all sorts of competing views. The big answer to this question really does make all the difference. A couple semesters ago, we did a series with the teenagers in Theology and Donuts where we spent a whole run of Sundays examining and comparing different historical controversies about Jesus Christ, commonly known as Christological heresies. And we used comic book superheroes as models. Superman, Wonder Woman, the Green Lantern, Batman, Swamp Thing, each of them standing in as a way of understanding and seeing, explaining, naming each of these points of view. Christ's origin story, nature and character, interaction with the world, powers and abilities, life and work. For us, this was a super helpful way of imagining the practical real-life outcomes of what this view of Christ might look like. And some of those teenagers actually blew me away with how much they knew about first-century Christian heresies. The church in Colossae and the church in any age contends with questions just like these. Where does Jesus fit in amidst history's assortment of philosophers, deities, rabbis, preachers, saints, religious leaders, rulers, powers? It's a competitive field out there. There's lots to consider. Sure, we've been introduced to Jesus of Nazareth, the healer, the teacher, risen lord, the Christ. But it's a fair question to ask. Do the Colossians need to keep looking for the next big thing? Is there something else, maybe? Another supplement to this whole package? An upgrade, maybe? Is there a next level to this whole Jesus thing? Today's remarkable passage from Colossians is Paul's final answer to this question. One of Scripture's most robust and energetic descriptions of Jesus Christ. What theologians call a high Christology. Because Paul goes all in on this one. His answer is this remarkable hymn that we see in Colossians 1. There's not another level. This is the pinnacle, the whole shebang. This hymn is the theological heart for the whole letter. Of Colossians. The assurance that Jesus Christ has a reach and a scope and effective range beyond anything we can imagine. Jesus isn't an upgrade from the usual assortment of prophets and leaders. This is Christ, Lord of the universe. Let's read a piece of that again. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For in him all things in heaven and earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things. And get this. And in him all things hold together. Richard Rohr says, Christ... Isn't just Jesus' last name. Paul doesn't hold back. The one who has existed for all eternity, maker of the vast universe, holds everything together. This same person has been made known to us in this remarkable character we meet in the Gospels, calling us to love and forgive our neighbors and our enemies. Ultimately, living self-sacrifice, mercy, grace. This is Jesus, the Christ, the one who makes everything hold together. In our time especially, we're beginning to understand just how massive our universe is. It's especially tempting to live as though we inhabit a speck in a vast expanse, composed of indifferent atoms and molecules, winding down the clock of the universe until the big freeze at the end of time. It can feel that way sometimes. Or maybe you've grown up with a view of the world with a creator who stands at a distance from us. And sure, Jesus came down to earth that one time, but now God is distant and separated and aloof, generally disappointed with the cosmos, ready, maybe even eager to judge and punish his creatures, an angry and distant deity who once paid us a visit but now can't wait to press reset on this entire messy enterprise. Paul tells us otherwise. Because our universe is intimately known, By a living and loving God. With this in view, we can't help but see every corner of our world differently. Do you have a passion for the arts or sciences, your work or your recreation? Making, planting, nurturing, breathing, eating, falling, struggling, dying? Are you laughing? in rejoicing are you suffering are you overwhelmed with the beauty of the earth and the rarity and frailty of life is your heart broken by the pain in the world are you among friends or are you surrounded by enemies all of it every moment is held together in Christ God is not a passive observer, but an engaged participant with skin in the game, creative and active, celebrating and suffering, giving himself for us. Friends, we worship the Redeemer of the universe, reconciling all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of his cross. I don't know how you felt about getting homework last week, but I have a little bit more for you. You'll find an insert. You don't have to look at it now. It's a phenomenal excerpt from the book Colossians Remixed, Subverting the Empire by Brian Walsh and Sylvia Kiesmet. Truly one of the great gifts to biblical scholarship. I couldn't recommend this book more but what they've given us here is an excerpt of that hymn written for 21st century people. Maybe in the coming week you could use it as a way of praying, a way of meditating, a way of pondering anew the ways that God might be at work in corners of the universe that you'd forgotten. This is the mystery of Christ. This is the substance of our faith may we find a new holy vision that calls us to robust engagement with our fellow creatures learning listening discovering doubting hopeful courageous amen